as they're stepping out, I'll ask you an unloaded question, not a loaded one. When is God good? All the time. All the time. We forget it sometimes. We do not always think He's good, but He's always been good. Aren't you glad we've never one day got what we deserved? And that's mercy. And then He gives us so many good things we don't deserve, and that's grace. Would you join me? Acts chapter number 3. As you're turning there, Acts 3. Um, I, can, I can never guarantee, but uh, this is one of our shorter chapters in this book. It's going to take us a while to get through this book, if the Lord wills. But um, we might, Lord willing, be able to cover this in three messages. We had verses 1 through 10 last week, and then we're going to look at uh, hopefully six verses this morning. All right, as you're turning, ladies, let me mention to you, uh, I know you may have tried to register for the Bible conference that's coming up. I think it's the third weekend in April. You see the information in your bulletin. Um, If you try, and I know some of you have already registered, um, but if you have tried uh, and you were not, a- not able to do that or you have just not registered yet, and this is you online, this is your friends, everybody you know in the area, this is not just a Grace View thing. So we certainly want our ladies of Grace View here. So you can now register where you want to go to. Just kind of, it's in your bulletin, but go to GVWN. That stands for Grace View Women Ministering, GVM, um, GVWN.com. And while you're there, you'll be able to register, and the first hundred uh, get a $15 resource, all right? Did I say that correctly? They get a $15 resource book uh, for the first hundred. Did I say that correctly? $15 registration for the first 100. There we go. I messed that up, but we got it. (laughs) Bottom line, get on there and register, and they'll let you know if you're one of the first hundred. So there apparently is still time. I know some, many have already started doing that. So get in there and do that, please. All right. Acts chapter number three. Uh, so last week, I'm going to do a quick review of this. Uh, we had a message that was very different. It had four points. I normally we have three, it seems like. Today we actually have four again. But the scene was that Peter and John are heading up to the temple This is after Pentecost. They're now filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter has already preached on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 have got saved. The church is now unified and devoted to multiple things, particularly worshiping God together and eating together and fellowshipping together and studying the Bible and learning the apostles' doctrine, that which would become what we call the New Testament. So they're devoted to that. They love each other so much that those who have poverty, poverty, people are selling their goods, putting it into a common fund, and, and, and financial needs are being met. But also they're out witnessing, and the Lord is adding daily to the church. Before I read today's text, I want to not amend, but I want to slightly add to it. It's just my opinion. Last week I pointed out that verses 1 through 10 in chapter number 3 are an example of chapter 2, verse 43. So hopefully you got your Bible open. If you do, look at chapter 2, verse 43, because again, I said last week, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3 is an example of 2.43, which says, And awe came upon every soul, so here's the phrase, And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so chapter 3 is an example of one of those many wonders. That's a big statement. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I want to now adjust my statement. I wouldn't die for this. I have a hunch. It's a hunch. I believe what we're reading in chapter 3, just because of the the reaction that we're going to see, 
I believe this is probably the first incident. That's my opinion. I believe what we read last week was the first incident of one of those many wonders and signs. Like, these guys have the power to. And I think it happened as Peter and John are on their way to the temple. And they're going in. So here's the temple. They're going in the east gate. The most ornate, the most elaborate one, according to the historian of the day, Josephus. And this one was overlaid with Corinthian bronze. It was just the, of all the gates that are going in into the temple. It, it's going from the court of the Gentiles up into the court of the women. It's called the beautiful gate. And as Peter and John are about to go in, a lame man that was always laid there. He was a beggar. He couldn't walk. He's over 40 years old. He's poor. And he begs and he begs. And as Peter and John are about to go in, this man asked them for money, for alms. Peter looks at him. And again, he says to this man, hey, hey, you look at us. And so now this man is no longer able to use the, the, his tool of eye contact. He's no longer asking anyone else. He's looking now at Peter and John. And Peter says, you fix your gaze on us. And he thinks he's going to receive some. And then Peter lets him know the bad news. I don't have any silver or gold. I know that's what you want. But what I do have, I'm going to give to you. And then he says, Peter says, in the name, which we just sang a lot about the name this morning, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then it says that, that he was lifted up by his right hand. So I, in my mind, I picture it this way. The statement is made, and then Peter extends his hand, and at that point, the man has a choice to make. If this is all a hoax and they try to lift me up, it's going to be really embarrassing and I'm going to get hurt. But he does not do that. He believes what has been pronounced about the name of Christ over him. And so he too extends his hand. He's lifted up and as he's coming up, already he's already enacted on faith before he's felt it. And then as he's coming up, his feet and ankle bones receive strength. He's able to stand, has never stood a day in his life. He was crippled from birth. Then he's walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people are noticing this. Man, they are just in awe. They are wow. They're amazed. And they just start flocking over toward him. And that's where we left off last. Because they knew that this, this is the man that lays daily at the gate called Beautiful. This is, that's that man. And no doubt some were there and maybe even heard what Peter and John said. But as he made his way into the temple, it's like most of the people have no clue. How did this happen? And now watch what the Lord does with that miracle. Look at verse number 11. While he clung to Peter and John. So picture it. He's been walking and leaping. He's praising God. While he clung to Peter and John. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to... Would you note this next word? It does not say they ran together to him. Doesn't say they all ran to him. And Peter and John just happened to be there. And that's not what happened. That's not what happened. While he's clinging to Peter and John, here come all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. A portico is like a covered porch area. So again, here's the temple. There's the beautiful gate, but then there is this like double road columns, marble columns. And this is Solomon's portico. Jesus taught there. Apparently, it's overlaid with some cedar. So there's a roof over it. Jesus taught that. I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm assuming the roof over it is going to help some amplification of the voice. And it's going to be able to hold large crowds. We're not told how large this crowd was. But no doubt, a lot of people use this. And the early church made great use of this. So they've made their way now to Solomon's porch. And then here comes all these people where these three men are. And this man that's been healed is clinging to Peter and John. Verse 12. 
And here they all come, and Peter saw it, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. That's going to, those, that verse and a half is going to be our first point. Peter saws everybody, sees everybody coming, and then he is going to address the crowd based on what he sees. And then listen to what he's going to tell the crowd. Now, we are not looking at the whole message today. It's going to go all the way through the end of the chapter. We're only doing really about four and a half verses of his actual message. So look at verse 12. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? So he's seeing utter amazement. This is not a strong rebuke here. It's basically saying, this is amazing, but why are you shocked? We are the people of God. There's one God, and we are his people. We're the nation of Israel. We have a rich history of miracles. In fact, it's not been that long ago, just months since you've seen or at least heard of, and some of you have no doubt experienced miracles yourself. Why are you now shocked? Well, you now know why they're shocked, because the one who did all those miracles in their mind is no longer here. Apparently, you two guys. So they're staring at them. Back to verse 12. Men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this? Or, here's the real problem Peter was having. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? Translation. Hey, you better get that look off your face right now. Don't be looking at us like that. I'm a fisherman, he's a fisherman. You think we got the power to do this? Stop it. We didn't do this. So again, look at verse 12. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by you think because we're good? These guys have great, they're so holy and godly, that's why they're, come on. You got to get that out of your head. Stop it. Verse 13. He starts giving the credit. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Let's pause right there. Had he stopped at that moment, you would feel exactly his original initial point. Did you catch it? Hey, why are you looking at, why are you shocked? Number two, why are you looking at us? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You already know how the rest of that sentence would finish, right? If you just pause right there, then you can feel free to answer out loud. Who performed the miracle? It's not me and him. Stop looking at us. You want to know where the credit goes? It goes to who? You got a couple of choices. It is God or it's Jesus. Jesus or it's God. It's God through Jesus. And that's the right answer. And that's his original thought. But now he's going to slide in another direction because he has a bigger goal in mind. The God of Abraham, picture him, he's, he's speaking loudly again like he did at Pentecost. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Remember this? Some of you in the crowd, you were there. You delivered him over, and then you denied him in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. Here, you hear Peter? Hey, 
You know he wanted to let him go. You know he wanted. He should have let him go. He was the ruler. He made the final call. He was weak and cowardly. But in his heart, he tried desperately to let Jesus go. But you denied him. You delivered him. You would have none of it. You, my audience, today is how Peter's preaching. Verse 14. He drives it in a little further. Who did you deny? Not just Jesus. You denied the holy and righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. There's a double guilt. You asked for the holy righteous one to be killed. And you asked for a murderer to be released and given to you as a favor. And because of verse 13 and 14. The final result. Just going to nail it down. Call it what it is. Verse 15. You killed the author of life. And now he slides back where his first thought. God has glorified his servant, Jesus. You've killed the author of life, whom God, you killed him. This is what you did. Here's what God did. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we, excuse me, former lame man, me and this man here, we're witnesses that God has raised his servant, Jesus From the dead, the one that you made sure was crucified. And so now to finish his thought for today's portion of the message. It's verse 16. So we're witnesses of his resurrection. And his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see. You see him running around. You see him leaping. You hear him pray. Whom you see and know. You know this is no trickery. You know this is the man that moments ago was once again at the gate called Beautiful. So his name, the name of Jesus, his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Now, go ahead and get the second part of verse 16 in your mind. That's where we'll finish. And the faith that is through Jesus, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Did you notice four things this morning? Number one, I'm going to borrow a phrase that, that if you come to this seminar in September with Jeff and Anna Musgrave, you're going to hear Jeff Musgrave use this phrase. Point number one this morning, a divine appointment. There's a divine appointment. Solomon's portico is starting to fill up with people. There's been a miraculous healing of a man over 45 years old. He's over 40 years old. He's never walked a day in his life. There was a pronouncement over him. Now he's running around. He's praising God. He's walking and leaping. And he keeps going back to these two guys. And he keeps clinging to them. So what's this clinging? Are you thinking already? Verse number 11. While he clung to Peter and John. Uh Uh-oh, is it short-lived? Uh, my legs aren't working. Why is he clinging? I need help, fella. Did God give strength to his feet and ankle bones, but didn't give him good cardio to match? <laughs> I've been running. I've been praising. No. Why is he clinging? Why is he clinging? And why did he, what, was he clung to them? Because he was filled with what? Gratitude. He's thankful. So however it's happening, these people don't start just coming to him. Hey, man, that's awesome. Man. I, I knew. This is amazing. That's a, That's not what they're doing. They're coming to them because this man is so thankful and grateful to them. It is clear these two guys have had something. So in their mind, they're coming because 
you too have healed this man. And this is what Peter sees. This first point's a short one, but I want us to really get it. God, within two chapters, in chapter 2 and now again in chapter 3, he has prepared what I would call a ready audience. A ready audience is the best kind of audience to preach to. A ready audience is the best kind. And on two occasions, Peter is preaching to a ready audience. The first one was ready because of the gift of tongues. The Holy Spirit allowed these 120 people to speak in languages they had never studied. And that got people's attention. And then he used that to preach the gospel. This time, it's a lame man has been healed. And God is now drawing a crowd. I'm going to again throw that line out. I like that sentence that I gave you last week from Ivor Powell. He talks about this lame man. And he says, one of his ecstatic jumps was more convincing than a thousand words. And people are just coming all over. Every time the guy jumps, there is no denying. That's a genuine. We know him. Something has happened. This is a bona fide miracle. And God is preparing and collecting a ready crowd. So it's almost that time to start planting seeds. And those, I don't do that. I've never, I've, Deanna did a garden one year. And I helped my mom uh, do my mom do a garden years and years ago when I was a little boy. I've never done one on my own. I don't think I could grow anything. I could probably grow something. that I, I'm good at weeds. Our house has plenty of those. I'm great at growing weeds. But here's, here's a fact. When you plant seed, seed is best planted in prepared soil. So why don't you start writing this thought. Gospel seed, gospel seed is best planted in prepared hearts. So the way God prepares hearts, it could be a faithful and godly parent, a faithful and godly co-worker, a friend, someone who's been given a great testimony, and they don't actually get to lead the person to Christ. But boy, their, their life has been preparing this heart to receive ultimately and I had a lot of that in mind. I got saved at a Bible camp hearing a preacher I'd never really heard, but a lot of seed was already planted in my life. Gospel seed is sometimes God prepares hearts by hardship and trial and pain and affliction and suffering, but that gets the person ready. I'm ready to hear what God has. Before they would ignore it, but now their heart is prepared. Gospel seed is best planted in prepared hearts. So here's what I find interesting. And again, I wouldn't die for this, but I think this is the first miracle that the apostles did out of chapter 2, verse 43. I don't think Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and I don't think Peter goes, hey, you know what I'm going to do today? What's that? You know the guy that's by the beautiful gate? Yeah. If he's there today, I'm going to heal him. It's going to draw a crowd, and when the crowd's there, i got my notes. I'm ready to go. Now, I have my notes today. I've prepared, hopefully, for this moment. My point is, Peter had not specifically prepared for this moment. But God had already been preparing Peter for the moment. He's ready. And as soon as he sees this opportunity, his heart is immediately bent toward, wait a minute, I know what I'm supposed to do. It isn't just this, here comes the crowd. Well, <laughs> we're, 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 we're grateful. That is something else. <laughs> ah, Thanks. What can I say? John helped too. John, you were there too. I mean, hey, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for what he's done. Have a great day, guys. That's not what he does. This is an opportunity. I know what I'm supposed to do. I didn't prepare specifically for this moment, but God's already been preparing Peter. Real simple thought, and I want everybody, this is one of the main things that you need to get. Gospel and ministry opportunities are often 
cropping up at times and at moments that we just don't expect it. You don't expect it. I had it happen in my life this week. I got a little habit. If I have my Wednesday notes ready, if I have something and I'm kind of familiar enough with them that I can kind of just walk, I can do two things at once. I can get exercise. Sometimes I do it in the fellowship hall if it's cold or rainy. And sometimes I'll do it on a Monday afternoon or a Tuesday or a Wednesday morning. And I'll just walk around. I had it happen just this week. There was a ministry opportunity, an opportunity to share the God. I didn't plan on that. And I wasn't even sure. But as soon as it got over there and within a sentence or two, it was clear. Share the gospel with this guy. And for the next couple of hours, he and I talked right here on the property. That is going to happen in your life. Let me read to you Ephesians. Now just hear it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to what the Bible says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has already prepared good works, and you're going to do it. But this week as you go out, you need to be asking, Lord, give me some open doors to do good works that you've already pre-planned for me to do. And as you go live your life, be looking and listening for that prompting. And when you do it, don't shrink back. Be obedient. And so to finish this idea, God has been preparing you. You are ready. He has been. He is preparing you. Be sensitive to it. Don't miss it. Number two, notice in verses 12 through 15, the second thought this morning, God's exaltation of Jesus. God's, his, Peter's original thought in his message is that what's been happening, what happened with the lame man is an example of God's exaltation of Jesus. So I'm going to slow for a moment. I'm going to belabor a point because I think it's really important. I'm going to spend too long on it. I'll regret later spending, I'm not going to spend like 15 minutes, but I'm going to give it five or six or seven minutes. Peter sees people coming toward him, and he has, they have a look of amazement on their face, and they're looking at, like, well, and again, as already in the reading, you're going to have to stop that. Knock it off. He is not going to put up with this. Peter's not going to put up with this. And so there, we need to learn two sides of something. You might need to be learning one side of this equation, or you may need to be learning the other side of the equation. Write this thought down. For God to get the glory, for God to get the glory, that's what's supposed to happen. Grace, if you listen, God is supposed to get the glory, but for God to get the glory, we must refuse to take the glory. We have to refuse to take the credit. If you want to have that as your word, we have to refuse to take the credit for what God has done through us. In fact, I'm going to say the same thing a little stronger in the next sentence. To fail to give God the glory for what he has done in us is actually to steal and to rob from God that which belongs to him. We have to. Now, I hope as you're writing that thought, yes, as you're writing that, I want you to listen. Did you catch the positive nature of that? I want to emphasize this. What you might have heard, here's the note again. For God to get the glory, we must refuse to take the credit for what he's done and to fail to give God, notice the positive action there, to fail to give God the glory for what he does is to steal from him. You might have heard this, oh, I hear you, Jeff. I've got to make sure that when I help someone, if I help them physically or if I help someone financially, 
Or if God uses me to be a blessing in someone's life spiritually, I am that instrument that is a spiritual blessing to someone. I hear you. I got to not brag. I got to not brag. Hey, I, did you hear what I did? I helped so-and-so. Be careful. Hey, I was the one that actually paid that bill. Or I'm the one who helps them do such and such financially. Or I'm the one who taught them all those spiritual things. I'm not talking about not bragging. I'm talking about how we have to have a positive action. Of, of course not bragging about it. But to intentionally, specifically, positively make it clear God gets the credit for this. Like, make that step. Don't just... I'm not talking about, yeah, I'll be silent. I'm not, I'm not talking about being silent. I'm talking about verbally, consciously, intentionally giving God the credit for what He's done through you. We've got to refuse to take the credit. Peter will have none of it. He'll do the same thing in chapter number 10. Cornelius is going to fall down. He's going to fall down his feet and start worshiping. Peter's going to like, you, you got to get first thing before I can preach the gospel. You have to get up. I'm just a man like you. Stop that nonsense. Here's what we can't do. We can't read the New Testament and go, boy, that Peter and John, they wrote seven of the books in the New Testament. A large percentage of the New Testament written by these two guys. You, you guys are brilliant. You guys have given the world some doctrine and teaching and some religious ideas that's become the most popular for the last 2,000 years. You're absolutely brilliant. Here, listen, their doctrine is not theirs to take the credit for. Their doctrine is not theirs to take the blame for. I like that part. Because I know sometimes it has happened and it's going to happen again. Here's what I know. I'm going to tell someone something out of the Bible, and they're not going to like it, and they're going to get really mad at me, and they're going to want to blame me. You think, and that thing, it doesn't matter what I think. Here's all that matters. Did I tell you what the Bible says? And if I told you what the Bible says, it's not my doctrine. I can't take the credit for it. can't take the blame for it. Here we have a situation where these two men were used to heal a lame man, and they can't take the credit for it. This is what God did. God's honored his son through this. Most of you have been to the Biltmore house. I've never been up there one time that anyone said, this is great. So where do you keep them? And the workers like, keep, I'm sorry, where do you keep what? The hammers and the trowels that put all this mud in, in between these joints. i got to see the hammers and the trowels. Nobody has ever asked that. Now, they do have a section in the lowest floor where you can read about Mr. Olmstead and Mr. Hunt. Why? Because they're the builders and the architect. You can't give credit to hammers and trowels. We're just tools in the hand of the builder. That's all you are. See, when I was younger, I'm going to confess to you, I had a nasty habit. My nasty habit was that I would really, in my mind, just become enamored with, and I would become just smitten with people's talent and skills. You probably have had that happen too. Mine were three areas. Boy, if they could sing a certain way, Singing was one of my three. If they could sing a certain way, if they could teach and preach the Bible a certain way, and sports. If they were good in the sports that I liked the most, and especially if they had certain skills, man, I just elevated them in my mind. They could sing, man, that and there, boy, they could sing that way. And man, that one there, I've never thought of that. And while they're delivering, they're so charismatic. And man, this person has this skill on the basketball court or that one on the baseball field or the football field. This person, and I just put them way up here. But as I've gotten older, and I want everybody to listen, hopefully you've arrived there. If you haven't, you better do it real quick. Any skill, any ability, any talent or gift is exactly that. It is a gift from God we got to remember that. 
Y'all have heard me say this multiple times, and I hope you know my heart. I'm being totally sincere. I know, I know for a fact that if God ever decides to just turn off the spigot and dry up the Holy Spirit, illuminating the pages and helping me to understand concepts, if He ever just stops helping me to explain and declare His Word, His truth, I'm done. I'm done at that point. My effectiveness is over I would probably keep doing it for a while, trying to minister, but the ministry is over. Hope probably wouldn't take long for people to realize, dude, don't have it anymore. <laughs> Something's happened. If God ever dries it up, in my case, my livelihood is gone, instantly gone. So here's the two sides. I told you I'd spend six or seven minutes on it. Are you prone to kind of like it and bask when people make much of how you've helped them or others physically or how you've been used by God to help people financially? Do you kind of like it and bask when people point out how much you've helped people spiritually? You kind of like that? When really ought to be making you severely uncomfortable and you interject and make sure it's... Well... And on the other side, are you guilty? I'm asking you this morning, are you prone to overinflate the gifts and talents of mere human beings, even though they've helped you physically, helped you financially, or helped you spiritually? They've been used by God. Are you prone to overinflate that? Stop it. You may be hearing that and say, hold on, Jeff. Should we not be thankful and grateful? Yes. Should we not tell them? Absolutely, you should. But your whole tone and even your wording, you have to be careful. First, thank God before you ever go tell this person, oh, wow, thank you so much. I really need, you ought to, Lord, thank you. You did that. Thank you, Lord. And then, yes, I want to thank you for being used by God. I'm thanking God for you. I thank God for you. And that would be encouraging to them. That's a good thing. But stop putting on the pedestal. They're just a human being. No better than you. Look at verse 13. I have a quick thought here. Let's see if I have time. Yes, this one will be a short one. So he shuts that down. Stop looking at us the way you're looking at us. Number one, next thought. Let's give credit where it belongs. The God of, now to catch this wording, it's a side thought. The God of Abraham, do you hear it, Peter? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our forefathers. How many gods are there? Well, you got the God of Abraham, and you got the God of Isaac, and then you got the God of Jacob. No, you say, Jeff, this is one God. Do you feel the little underlying lesson in that? It's Abraham's God, and Abraham has a relationship with God, but then, make no mistake, Isaac had his own relationship with God. That, he was my dad's God. Isaac's got his own relationship with God. And then Jacob, bless his heart, Jacob's a late bloomer. All right, I'll just tell you, read Genesis. But he gets there. And Jacob don't just say, yeah, that's my granddad's God. And that's my daddy's God. No, Jacob has his own relationship with God. You see, listen, I have my own relationship with God. I have my own relationship with God. Deanna's got her own relationship with God. I'm not riding her coattails. She's not riding mine we got two kids. 
Erica has her own. She's got her own relationship with God. Jonathan's got his own relationship. Do you have your own personal, unique to you relationship with God? What does it look like? Well, I married somebody and they love the Lord and they pray a lot. And I go to church because they go to church. You need to get your own relationship with God. But now look again at verse 13. Men of Israel, why, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going back. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. And then he stops. Did you feel it earlier? Because I'm, I'm going to give you a note. The next note, it's not real clear. In this passage, at this point, Peter doesn't make it real clear. How has God glorified his servant Jesus? How did he glorify him? But if you keep reading into verse 15 and 16, it becomes real clear. He's attributing this miracle. And then, of course, he names something specific. If you want to write this down. Peter doesn't spell it out initially in verse 13. But God has glorified Jesus by the miracles that God did through him. The miracles that Jesus is doing, God has a part in that. And in so doing... God is exalting Christ through his miracles. We know that in verse number 15, he mentions the resurrection. God has exalted Christ through his resurrection. And then ultimately, and unnamed, it is subtly implied here, God has exalted Christ not only by the miracles he has done and by being resurrected, but God has seated Christ at his right hand. He's exalted him to the right hand of the Father where he rules and he reigns as the Lord over all things so that the example of the lame man actually proves all three of those points why is this lame man healed because Jesus is alive Jesus is the one who heals and he's proving it that though he's not there physically and bodily he is reigning as Lord and he's the one who done this because Peter and John are just fishermen and so those are the three areas in which he has bestowed honor that are implied in this text and there's others on top of this so Peter's subtly saying hey Israel, did you think the miracles were over because you don't see Jesus anymore? Oh, they're not over. He's alive. He's still powerful. He's ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. And he's the one who did this. God is glorifying his son. And here's an example of that with the lame man. One last thought in our second point today is out of verse 15. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. Me and John are witnesses. William Barclay writes, he says, the early preachers. And you're going to find this. We're going to keep saying it. It's coming up over and over. You might as well get used to it. Never get tired of this. He says, the early preachers always stress the vindication of the resurrection. They always stress. I think, I think every sermon we're going to read in the book of Acts, they're always going to hit the resurrection. They may not always spell out the crucifixion like this one does point out the death of Christ they're always going to hit the resurrection Barclay continues he writes now hear it before you write it just hear it first he writes that the resurrection was the proof that he was literally indestructible you killed the author of life but God raised him from the dead and we're witnesses to the fact of that he is literally indestructible you killed him but he's back alive He's indestructible, and Barclay continues. The resurrection was proof that he was literally indestructible, that he was literally Lord of life and of death. Think about that. If I were to just make a circle, and we're going to call this life, 
Here's life. Jesus is Lord of life. And over here's death. And Jesus is Lord of death. Jesus went to death and proved he's Lord of it. And he's the Lord of life. He can take life. He can lay down life. He's the Lord over life. He's the Lord over death. He's totally indestructible. They just keep on hitting on the resurrection. And we're witnesses of this. Catch it and then you'll see it on the screen. Peter says we're witnesses. What does he mean? Me and John. Hey. Listen, listen, this is awesome. What the Lord has done for this lame man is great. We've seen it done many, many times. It is great. But me and this man over here, we've seen something far greater than this. We've seen the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. You crucified him. He died. His body was in a tomb for three days. His soul went to Hades, the place of the dead. But we've seen him alive. What kind of witnesses are they? Now, this is important. There's grades of witnesses. Peter and John did not see the Lord one time after his death a tenth of a mile away. That looks like, I think it is. They didn't see Christ alive after his resurrection 100 yards away or 100 feet away or 50 feet away or 30 feet away. Write this thought. Their witness was the type. It was of an close, intimate and I'm talking about hands-on. They literally, hands-on. They could touch the Lord. They saw him drink. They saw him eat. They could hug him. It's a hands-on, close, intimate, and a repeated kind of witnesses. The kind of witness that you would actually die for. I mean, the strongest kind. We're willing to die for this. And Peter did die for it. And John was heavily crucified, and they tried to kill John. He's the only one of the 12 who did not die. That's a strong witness. Do you hear what Peter's saying? This is great, but me and this man here have seen something far greater than that. We're witnesses. Close, intimate, hands-on, repeated. He kept showing up. We're totally ready to die to being witnesses to the resurrected servant and son of God. All right. So here's what we got to do. You may think, Jeff, you usually have a point and verses, and then we move down, and the next point has different verses. It looks like the verses are overlapping. Yes. And there's a reason for that. The second and third point, sometimes he's making the one point, and sometimes he's making the other. Peter's initial goal is what? To give the glory to God and to show who is responsible for the miracle. Now listen carefully. That's not his only goal. He has another goal, which is not just to exalt Christ for what he's done. His ultimate goal in this situation, he wants to see these people be saved, have their sins forgiven. This is important. In order for that to happen, he doesn't just talk how God has exalted his servant Christ. He now has to talk about, listen, not just what God has done. He needs to talk about what they have done. If your goal this coming week, those of you who have been learning how to share your faith, or those of you who want to share your faith and are going to share your faith, if your goal is to truly help someone come to faith in Christ and be saved, you can't just talk about what Jesus has done. You may think, I'm going to go tell everybody what Jesus has done. To be effective, you need to talk about what they've done. You've got, and frankly, do it in the opposite order I just said. Talk about what they've done. And then talk about what God has done. And let the Holy Spirit use it. Third point this morning is this. 
the specific sins of Peter's audience. The specific sins. Every word in that note is important. We're going to talk about, and Peter's preaching about, the specific sins of his audience on that day. Verse number 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom, here he goes, he needs to talk about the specific sins of his audience, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. This is what you've done. This is what God is doing. Here's what you did. And you can't escape it. Write this thought down. The New Testament, y'all help me out. We're not being mean, we're being accurate. That to be, and I'm talking about practically speaking. The New Testament repeatedly lays the blame for Jesus' death with what group of people? The Jews. Our sins are responsible for Christ's death, just as much as their sin, but in a practical sense, Peter in particular seems to go out of his way. Paul will do it. I think once, maybe in this book, I think. Peter, like hammers on it three or four times. He does not let, he wants his audience to know, you are responsible for the death of the author of life, the servant of God, the son of God, the Christ. You killed the Lord God, the Christ. You killed God's son. He, he makes that so clear. And so one of the things, it's real subtle here, one of the things I noticed this week is that Peter, in this passage, he's not hammering on their leaders. The Jewish leaders had their sin. You say, what was the Jewish leader's sin? They opposed Christ. They hated Christ. They connived. They bribed. They hired false witnesses. They unjustly arrested him in the garden. They had this crooked, illegal, corrupt trial. They had much sin. Peter's not preaching about that. Here's, what, here, here's what's in Peter's heart. Peter knows, I have my own sin in the courtyard. Your leaders had their sin all through the night. For you today, I want to talk about what happened somewhere around 7, 8 o'clock on that fateful Friday morning. This is when you sinned. Not them anymore. And, I'm going to, and Peter, in essence, says, he doesn't know it yet. I'm going to talk to your leaders tomorrow. That's chapter 4. They're coming. And Peter's going to let them have it. But right now, we need to talk about your sin. Your sin. Well, what is their sin? Pilate repeatedly wanted to release Christ. Now, if you were here with us when we went through Matthew at the end, you have a major advantage, and I cannot re-preach that message. But you remember how the Jewish leaders brought Jesus, and they really want him to do him a favor and just put him to death. Don't ask a lot of questions, but Pilate's like, I need reasons. Rome is supposed to be an empire of justice. And they gave him no good reasons, and, and they couldn't come up with anything that matched and fit. Nothing worthy of death. Sounds like all he's done is broken some of your religious laws. That's not something we're going to put people to death for. But they will not take no for an answer. But they have. You remember how they had things against Pilate that if they were to report him to Rome, Pilate would probably lose his job and he could even go to prison. And so he's afraid of the Jewish leaders. They have leverage. Hang with me. But Pilate has leverage on them in one way. Here's Pilate's leverage. I know you're not going to let me get off without doing what you want with this man. But I have an ace in the hole. 
And Pilate's ace in the hole is there's this custom at the Passover. And every Passover, I end up as the Roman governor. I do you guys a favor, and I give amnesty to some criminal. Now, I'm assuming the typical case would be that someone that the Jews think was innocent, has been done wrong. You got the wrong person, or you guys framed them. You, you Romans are not treating our person right. And so someone that is innocent, and they ask for that person, and then they get released. And the governor gives that to them. But this year, Pilate's going to skirt that, and he's like, I'm going to give you the choices. I'm not just going to take your answers from the crowd. I'm going to offer you two people. And so he offers this man named Barabbas is going to be free and loose on your streets, or I'm going to release this Jesus whom your leaders want me to crucify. So at this moment, it has now moved from the sin of the leaders. Peter's saying, it was put right in your lap. Pilate wanted to release him. And what did you do? You screamed and cried to release Barabbas and to crucify Jesus. You've killed the author of life. You've denied the holy, just one. We learned this months ago, if you were to harmonize the gospel, if you were to take a harmony of the four gospels, read them all, and if you were to just timeline it out, write this down, it proves that Pilate actually declared Jesus was innocent. Does anybody remember how many times? At least this many. Anybody remember that? At least six times. Six times. Six times Pilate declared Jesus is innocent. I find no fault in him. What's Peter's point? Peter's point, hey, Israel, men of Israel, a pagan, Gentile, Roman governor figured out in one hour what you haven't figured out in three years. That Jesus, the man, is the king of the Jews. He put it on a sign over his cross. Why is he dying? He's dying because he's the king of the Jews. Pilate figured it out. You still haven't figured it out, men of Israel. And Peter's point is, how is this possible? How is this even possible? Peter's point, you could have called for Christ to be released. You should have called for Christ to be released. Instead, you called for him to be crucified. Release to us Barabbas. And in so doing, verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one. <sighs> holy, those of you been with us, holy means what? Separate, set apart, separate in his own category. Those of you who have been with us on Wednesday night, Christ is set apart from two things. He's set apart from what? Sin, and he's set apart from everything. Watch. If you had a big enough tablet and we were to draw a line down the middle, and over here's the category of things that are not created, and over here's the category of things that are created, over here you have God. And by that I mean God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, what's on this side? Everything else. Jesus is in the God, uncreated category. He is totally separate from everything. And he's in the category totally separate from sin. You denied and killed, delivered over to Pilate, the holy, righteous, just one. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, everything we've ever said about God is so holy, he can't tolerate our sin. God is so just, he can't just overlook our sin, he has to punish it. All that is true of Jesus because Jesus is God. Jesus cannot tolerate our sin. Jesus will let no sin into heaven. Jesus must punish all sin. He has to or he's not a just God. So Peter's point. Men of Israel, there's been one perfect human being in the history of the world and you killed him. You murdered him in the most cruel way that's ever been thought of. And there they stand. Thought they were 
going to go shake a lame man that's been healed's hand. And now Peter is blasting them about their specific sin. Verse 15, quickly. And because of what you did, he said, no, the Romans did it. No, because you denied him and handed him over and called, you ended up killing the author of life. You see the word author? See it? Author there means prince of life. It means originator of life. It means the pioneer, the one who leads the way to life. But specifically, it means originator. It's the idea of the source of life. Think about that. If everything that's in this created side over here, all the created things that have any form of life, all angels, all humans, all animals, all plants, everything that has any life, if you were to run a string, a cord, that life is flowing through that, all living things flow back literally, specifically to Jesus Christ, who's the original creator and their sustainer, all living things. He has so much life that life is flowing out to all of those categories, all the angels, all humans, all animals, all insects, everything, plants. It is all flowing from Christ. And you may be thinking, if he has that much life, then how did he die? That's a great question. How did he die then if he has so much? If he's the originator, the source of life, Well, no one took his life. Not even God the Father took his life. He laid down his life. So one last thought in verse 14, and then I'm going to have a thought that goes with it. Verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Do y'all see the dual nature of their sin? It goes like this. Hey, Israel... Y'all know that when Pilate pulled his ace in the whole card to override, I don't want to override the Jewish leaders, but if you all take my lead, then all I'll have to say is, hey, I went with what the crowd wanted. And I know that the Jewish leaders, they're a little fearful of the, of the crowd of Israel as well, and so I had to give them what they wanted. Here's what Pilate does. He doesn't just pick some random person that's in custody. He's like, go give me the absolute word, Barabbas. Get Barabbas. He picks intentionally the worst, a murderer, a robber, a violent insurrectionist. He puts him on one side and Jesus on the other. And Peter's point here is when you had a murderer and the healer, the one who healed some of you, who healed your loved ones, and if you were not healed, it's because you never came and asked him or he would have healed you. You got a healer, a sinless, perfect healer on one side, and a murderer, and Pilate says, one of these guys is going to be free on your streets tonight. Who's it going to be? No, no, the one that's going to go free. And they're shouting, Barabbas. Peter's like, how could you possibly, how do you sleep at night? Have you forgotten about Jesus? Because he's alive. I believe in a doctrine. I believe in it firmly. You may not. If you don't, you're wrong. (laughs) I'm just telling you. Here's an example. This scene is an example. This doctrine is called the depravity of man. We around here, we believe in the depravity of man. We don't believe that people are basically good, that every now and then we do some screwed up, messed up things. We believe that people at our core, left to ourselves, we're basically wicked, sinful, evil. Left to ourselves, we don't just every now and then stumble over into evil and sin. We choose it. That We are bent and prone. We are so depraved. Where do you see this? 
It's all in the Scripture. And here, what do you have in this scene? When given the easiest choice of all times. Couldn't get any easier. Religious people, not like, well, this is the lowest for life of humans, right? This is the lowest form of human beings that made this. No, this is the one nation that was the nation of God that had the Word of God, the Old Testament. Then they're religious leaders. These are people filled in this town on, on, on Passover. They're there to worship God. And what did they do? They totally blew it. I mean, Pilate gave them not a layup. I've missed some layups my time. He didn't even give him a dunk. He didn't even give him a dunk on like a lowered eight-foot goal. I mean, the goal is here. It's below your head. Just take it and put it in. And somehow you messed it up. How did that happen? Because people are depraved. Write this down. We wrote it months ago back when I stole it from some Matthew notes. I'll admit that. J.C. Ryle writes, Let us never be surprised at the wickedness there is in the world. Every now and then I get a little surprised and then I remember, no, that's us. Let us never be surprised at the wickedness there is in the world. And he writes, there is nothing which the heart of man is not capable of conceiving nor the hand of man doing. There's nothing which the heart of man is not capable of conceiving or the hand of man from doing. They say, yeah, that depravity. That's why I don't like the Jews, Brother Jeff. Well, then you have a depraved opinion. They're the people of God. We are supposed to love them and pray for them. Witness to them. Write this down. Depravity is not a Jewish issue. It's a human trait that all of us are guilty of when we're left to ourselves. We're all depraved. Yes, they're depraved. And here's an example of it. But we're no better. So the third point this morning was the longest. But just before I leave it, I want to circle back and I want us to get, did you remember how the third point started? The specific sins of Peter's audience. So now it's where I want to finish this third point. Do you see what he did? Peter's whole message was specifically designed for his audience. This coming Wednesday night, Mike's going to be teaching to a specific audience. Would-be parents, current parents, grandparents or potential grandparents. If you're none of those, still come. <laughs> Maybe it's like, yeah, I'm going to come so I can help my parents. Okay. Come help your parent. Come. But he's going to target the message to the audience. When, when our ladies get together with a group of women, so often, not all the time, but often their message is fitted for them. Sometimes we, we've had men's get together, and, and we have a men's message. Peter specifically fit his message. Like, he tailor-made it for the... Listen, later on in Acts, Paul's going to preach to Gentiles. It's going to be a different style of message. He's not going to get up and, like, hammer his Gentile audience for practically being the ones that crucified the Christ. He's going to talk to them about idolatry. Say, where are you going? Each person needs to be convicted of their specific sins. Let me recircle back. Hey, hang with me. Peter knows his sin specifically was in the courtyard. The leaders, their sin was through the night. Men of Israel, yours happened in front of Pilate. So the question this morning that Peter would ask us is, what is your, your specific sin? 
Because what we've done this morning is we've sat back and we've read a passage and go, yeah, those Jews, they really blew it. What is your specific sin? Each person needs to be convicted of their own sins. Write this down. We, the way that happens, what God does is He uses a person, a Christian, to take the Word of God. It may be in a one-on-one setting. It may be a small group setting. It may be in a setting like this, talking to a whole group of people. But what we need to do is we must lovingly and humbly use God's law. Use God's law to help reveal a person's unique rebellion against God so that we can call sin by its specific names. Sin, you say, what do you mean we need to use God's law? Those of you who been with us here on Wednesday nights the last few weeks, what portion, specific portion of God's law do we need to lovingly and humbly confront people with? The Ten Commandments, of which idolatry is number one. It's the first one. Listen. Use, and I'm going to add to this, start with the Ten Commandments. If you can get a person to feel their sinfulness by, yes, I'm a blasphemer. Yes, I'm a thief. I'm disobedient to my parents. Yes, I'm lustful. Or, yes, I'm the one that's committed adultery. Or, I'm the liar. I'm the covetous person. Use what it takes. And if you have to go outside of that, like, man, they're not really feeling very guilty about that. Find where they are and apply that portion of the Scripture because it got to get them really good and lost. So they can call sin by its specific names. Is Carol here this morning? Okay, I was going to mention, I heard a couple of ladies Wednesday night talking about how the James study Wednesday morning was getting on their toes. Because James was apparently talking about the tongue, and they were getting real specific about sins of the tongue. And it was like, yeah, that wasn't a lot of fun. Like, start naming things that we might or might not have had problems with. We must repent, not just of sin in general, but of our specific sin. Our pet sin. Our favorite sin. Listen, we don't get to protect. Lord, I'm confessing all these, but I'm protecting this one. What is your sin? Is yours a sin of the tongue? Are you guilty of blasphemy? You have a filthy mouth? Do you take things that aren't yours? Are you lustful, greedy? Are you discontent, ungrateful, unthankful? Do you lie and justify it? Are you angry at God? In your mind, you got it all figured out. God is wrong because he's allowed this pain and the suffering. Or God is wrong. You made me this way. Why didn't you make me like them? You're wrong, God. we got to repent of our specific sin. we got to call it and name it for what it is. That's why Peter says, I want to talk to you today about what you did a few months ago. And then lastly, he finishes up in verse 16. And this has two parts to it. There's 16A and 16B. Would you notice the object and the origin of faith? The object of faith and the origin of faith. The object of faith and the origin of faith. So he now returns. Peter returns where he left off in verse 13. Having dealt with sin, he now gets back to the lame man. And he says, verse 16, In his name, the one that you crucified, the author of life, the servant of God, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of this. And his name, by faith in his name, 
has made this man strong whom you see and know. You see him. You all know who this is. You know this is not fake. This is an actual, genuine miracle. And how did it happen? It happened by the name and faith in the name of Jesus. And so, Grace for you, I want to invite you this morning. I want to invite you, if it takes it, if it takes it, even come forward this morning and put your faith in Jesus because Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the object of our faith. So if you need to, you come put your faith in Jesus and you're thinking, what is he looking at? He looks like our dog sometimes. Acts like he sees things. It's like, what are you looking at? Oh, you keep saying, come put your faith in Jesus. Well, Jesus is right here. And he's over here. And he's right in front of your face. Bodily, he's on the throne of God in an actual heaven spiritually, he's everywhere you will ever go in this life. So you don't need to come up here and put your faith. So here's the thing. You say, Jeff will get saved. He's telling these people they're going to be able to get saved. That's where he's heading. By putting their faith in Jesus. But here's the problem. You can't see Jesus. And you can't touch Jesus. If he was here, then we would definitely, I wouldn't be up here. I'd be down there with you. Or I would be down here. Let's all come. And there's Jesus. Let's put up. But you can't see him. You can't touch him. So when you can't see Jesus, write this down. When we can't see him, we have a name. And a name is enough. Name's all you need. Because a name represents the person. The name represents the person. The name represents the person. It represents their authority. It represents their reputation. It represents their character. When you can't see. Remember I used a little second grader last, last week. And I talked about... If Dr. Wilkins needs to see a student and Dr. Wilkins isn't standing there and the little second grader doesn't have Dr. Wilkins with them, that's okay. All the second grader needs is the name and they now have power and authority and we will send whoever needs. Hey, so-and-so, apparently Dr. Wilkins needs to see you and that was our school administrator when I was a teacher. They just have the name. You can't see the person. You can't touch the person. You can't, you've never seen Jesus. You've never been able to reach out and physically touch Christ. So when that is the case, what do you have? You have a name. And Peter's point, a name is just as good. Because the name is connected and attached and represent. It means I'm connecting to the person behind this name. Now look quickly at 16a and I'm going to move, finish with 16b. Peter says, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. Who had faith in Jesus' name to make the man strong? Peter did. Anybody else? And? John had faith in the name of Jesus. Peter clearly had faith. Peter had so much faith in the name. But Jesus isn't even here. Yes, he is. I have a name. He has so much faith in the name of Jesus. Peter is willing, and other people could hear it, to declare, rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's putting yourself out there. And Peter is so confident in it, he puts his hand out. But we know, and by the way, he had the faith first. But the man had enough confidence to believe that what was said, he put his faith in the name and met Peter's right hand and was lifted up. And then in the process of being lifted, then he felt his feet and ankle bones receive strength. And then he starts doing what he did, walking, leaping, and praising God. They had faith. So right now I want to give you your last note. But don't click your notebooks or shut your Bibles. Because we still got second part. I just ran out of space on your handout. Literally. 
The name and faith in the name is how this person was healed. So there's a lesson for us this morning as Christians. We as Christians have power. And I don't just write a note. Get the thought. We have power when we believe in Jesus' name to pray and to serve God. We believe in Jesus' name to serve God through it. We believe in Jesus' name to pray to God through it. And we believe in Jesus' name to live a godly life. Through the power, we're like, I can't see Jesus, but I know that Christ can live the, the righteous, godly life in me, and I'm going to rely on it. I'm going to believe in it. I know I can go talk to God the Father. Why? Because I have this name, and I have faith in this name. I believe. I do not feel like I can do that ministry. God has called me to do this ministry of myself. I know I can't do it, but I'm going to go do it in the name of Christ because I have faith in the name of Jesus. Peter put himself out there, and he was used by God to heal a man. We have power when we believe in Jesus' name to the point that we'll pray and serve God and live a godly life. How? By faith in the name of Jesus. I'm sorry to wear y'all out, but if you've been here on recent Wednesday nights, I'm going to hit you again because we're reviewing a little bit. We're doing two things at once. All right? We talked about believing and faith. And we talked about that Bible-believing, Bible-faith has three aspects to it. Review those quickly. Don't say them out loud yet. Bible-faith, what the Bible's calling for, Bible-belief, the kind that gets results, that results in salvation, the kind that will get you in access to God in prayer, the kind that will, you'll be able to serve God through the kind that you will be able to live a godly life when you think you can't. It actually has three aspects to it. Raise your hand if you remember those three aspects. Those of you, it's got three aspects. Oh, not many feel confident enough. Just a few are right here. Give you a hint. The first one starts with the letter U. Is that coming back to you? Say it with me. The first kind of faith, the first aspect of faith is to what? Understand. You got to understand the facts. The second aspect of faith starts with the letter A. It is I understand the facts and I also what? Agree with the facts. But then the third kind of faith, and let's use the one that starts with the letter T. The third kind of faith, the one that actually brings it home, is you don't just understand the facts and agree with God about the facts. You ultimately what? Trust the facts. You see this note? Look at it. We're called to have so much faith and belief in the, in, in, in the name of Jesus, which connected and represents the person, that we understand. Here's where it starts. I know what the Bible says about praying in the name of Jesus. I've read the verses. Number two, I agree with them. That's great. You still haven't used it. Number three, I'm going to go pray to God through the name of Jesus. Now you are putting your faith in the name of Christ. Look at the second word. I am learning. I'm getting verses that talks about how even me, I can serve God through the name of Jesus. All right, learn those and remember them. And then agree with them. Consider it so. I consider that to be so. And then go serve Christ while believing. Live a godly life. I, Jeff, there's this aspect. I'm really struggling. Learn what we have available to us in the name of Christ, what Christ can do. Learn the information, understand the facts, then agree with it, consider it so, and then go live a godly life and stop depending on yourself to do it. Just start, Jesus, I believe you're going to do it, so I'm relying on you right now. 
and put your faith, and you'll fulfill that. So put your faith in the name of Jesus. But there's one big problem. Everybody hear me? Put your faith, Peter did, put your faith in the name of Christ. But here's the problem. You can't. You can't do it. Why? Because you're depraved. I mean, I don't like that guy. I'm never coming back here again. He tells us to do something and tells us he can't. And on top of it, he insults us by calling us depraved. See if I ever go there again. You can't just believe. Next week's passage, Peter's going to tell them to repent. They can't repent. Romans done. Look at the end of verse 15, 16. And the faith that is through Jesus. So Jesus is the object of our faith, and Jesus is the origin of our faith. And right about now, those of you who've been with us for a long time are probably thinking, there he goes again. He looks for these passages. I promise I don't. It's just that they're everywhere. They're everywhere. It's all over. You got to have faith, Peter says. But it's the faith that is through Jesus. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? Can we have uh, chapter 11, verse 18? Look at verse 11. When they heard these, this is coming. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. God has granted Here's a group of Jews that were angry that Peter went and preached to Gentiles. And word came back that the Gentiles became Christians without becoming Jews first. Is that even possible? Peter came and gave them the whole story from start to finish. When they heard, okay, then the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I guess God gives the gift of repentance to them. Helps them change. You can't change your mind. You know how I know? Because it's your mind. You're like... I know I need to change my mind, but this is my mind. This is the way I think. Yeah, you can't change your mind. You're going to have to be given the gift of repentance. Second Timothy, I believe it is, chapter 2. Look at verse 25. Just so we don't read it wrong. The servant of God should be correcting his opponents with gentleness. So we don't just let error and untruth slide. We correct our opponents, but we do it with gentleness. Do it with gentleness. Don't just, I won the argument, man. I humiliated them in front of all their buddies. I studied apologetics for weeks, and I crushed them. That's not the goal. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may, perhaps, grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. That's the goal. Win a soul. Don't win an argument. God may grant them the gift of repentance. Now, this third one, I want you to actually turn. We're finishing. Go to Ephesians 2. I, I quoted Ephesians 2. I read Ephesians 2.10 earlier. We're finishing in Ephesians 2, 2. Go over there quickly. And as you do, I'm going to set it up with a brief question. Danielle, I don't know if this is true in English. You could probably help us later. But this is true of this text. You're in Ephesians 2. All right, watch. Let's suppose you're out and about and your family member, your spouse, your spouse calls and says, Hey, you're out and about. You're going to be home soon? Yeah. Leaving here and heading home. Can you swing by the store? Hang with me. I've got a hypothetical. I want your answer. I want your help. Can you swing by the store? Yeah, sure. What you want? Can you pick up 
a gallon of milk and a dozen eggs and a loaf of bread and make sure it's on sale. So hear it again. Can you swing by the store? Okay, what you need? Can you get a gallon of milk, a dozen eggs, and a loaf of bread? And make sure it's on sale. Okay. That pronoun, it. Hear it again. Because I want to know what does the pronoun it talk about. Go by the store, pick up a gallon of milk, a dozen eggs, and a loaf of bread, and make sure it's on sale. What is it? Could be all of them. It has to be at least which one? The bread. Why? Because that's the nearest noun in a list to the pronoun. Does that make sense? It very well probably means uh, uh, which bread? Get the one that's on sale. Which eggs? The one that's on sale. Which milk? The one that's on sale. But at least I know the bread better be on sale or I'm going to hear about it. Our text this morning, you're in Ephesians 2. Our text said, and the faith that is through Jesus has made this man perfect, given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Did you hear it? A gallon of milk, a dozen eggs, and a loaf of bread. For by grace, we've got a sentence that has three thoughts, three nouns. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And we have two pronouns. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is this? And what is it? Well, Jeff, you're the one up there. You're the one thought about this already. We're on, we're on the spot. We're ready to go to lunch. What is this and it? My personal opinion? I believe it's the list. For by grace, this is not your doing. It's grace. It's the gift of God. Grace, that's what it literally means. You've been saved. We have this concept of being saved and salvation. Getting saved. This is not your doing. It's the gift of God. Grace is the gift of God. Grace is not your doing. Being saved is the gift of God. Being saved is not your doing. Through faith. But I know it has to mean this. The faith is not your doing. The faith is the gift of God. Even the faith to believe in Jesus, that's all you can do. He does all the giving. All we do is the receiving. But you can't do it unless he gives you the faith to believe him. Grammatically, that has to happen in that sentence. So what that tells me, of all the good things that God could give you, and you may have been praying, Lord, give me physical healing or give my child or my loved one physical healing. Or, Lord, give me a better job. Or give us a, a better house. Or, God, give us more income. Or, Lord, give us $5 million. I don't know if he's going to give you that. I know this. When God gives a person faith, he's given them the best thing he can give them because it is through faith that gets you access to him and his grace, which is the best thing of all, but you'll never have it if he doesn't give you faith. 
If you're sitting here this morning and you can honestly in your heart say, I didn't do it, but I have heard the word of God. I've heard what it says about Jesus. I've heard how I can pray in his name. I've heard how I can have victory over sin, and I can actually serve the Lord. And you know what? By his grace and his giving, I've done all those things. You didn't do any of that. You know what you ought to do? If you can in your heart say this morning, I have faith. You ought to right now, God, you've given me the best thing there is. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. If you have faith, I want to invite you right now. Would you right now, if you can in your heart say, I've been given faith, would you just right now thank God for it, right where you sit? Thank him for it. Don't tune out. You've been given the best thing because faith is the key that connects you and unlocks the door to the greatest thing. Thank God for it. If you're here this morning and you do not have faith, and there's probably someone sitting here, and you may be thinking, Jeff, I'm struggling to believe. I just, I don't get it all yet. God has not yet given me faith. He's not given me repentance. Is there any hope? I'm going to invite you. Again, I may be talking to one person. I may be talking to someone online. I want to invite you. Very important. I'm going to ask you to do two things. Would you right now where you sit, if you do not have faith, ask God for it. Ask God for it. God, would you please grant me the gift of faith and repentance? And then ask him for it. And I want to encourage you to do one more thing. Keep listening to the word of God. Because the Bible says the way that God gives us faith. His faith comes by hearing the word of God. You keep coming. If you don't want faith, then just stop coming. But if you're like, I'm struggling, I know I need to have faith, then I want to encourage you, you keep coming. And maybe God will open your heart and give you that faith. Just before I close this morning, I'm going to pray. And I finish by talking to Christians. Right now, as soon as I say amen and you get up from your seat, I want you to... To even in the prayer, you be asking God, Lord, open doors of opportunity for, this, for me this week. And help me to be really sensitive to what you open the door. Help me to be sensitive and obedient. And I want you to use me. I've been ordained. You've already pre-prepared that I'm going to perform good works and I want to do those. And then secondly, when God uses you to do a good work, be it physical, financial, spiritual, whatever it is, you determine I will refuse to take credit for what God does. I'm going to intentionally, actively give him the glory. And then let's leave today putting our faith in the name of Jesus for prayer, for serving him, and for living the pure life that is impossible to us, but he makes possible through faith in the name of Jesus. Father, I commit these people to you. Thank you for them coming. Lord, I pray that we would go forth this morning exalting your son because you have. I pray that we would go forth and when it is time that we would not just pray these broad, general prayers of confession. Forgive us of all our sin. But Lord, that you would press upon our hearts what we need to confess specifically to you and call it by name when it comes in our life and be rid of it. And we're going to claim the blood of Christ over that to restore our fellowship. And Lord, I pray that we'll go out and just make use of the gift of prayer and the gift of being able to serve you in Jesus' name and his power and to live the godly life that you want to use to attract people to have a ready audience.
So I commit these folks to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.